we're going to be spending some time in the Gospel of Mark. Between now and Easter, which is in April, we're going to focus on the Gospel of Mark. And the reason is really simple. Sometimes when, when people begin to attend worship someplace, they wonder what all of the fuss is about. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. The big deal is Jesus. He's a big enough deal that in this grand scheme of things that God wrote the Bible about, he devotes four whole books to biographies of this one person. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament point to Jesus. All of the teaching in the New Testament about how we are to behave and the kinds of attitudes we should have, the way we ought to get along with each other. <coughs> Pardon me. It's all about Jesus. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, the one that confuses so many people, has to do with Jesus. So, I want to take time between now and Easter to focus on one of those biographies and to give you a, a, a better understanding of why Jesus is the focal point of the most important book that has ever been written. The Bible is the number one best-selling book of all time. That's amazing. That's amazing. We have the works of Aristotle and Plato that we can refer to that preceded the, the writing of this book of Mark. And yet, most people don't end up studying the, book, the, the writings of Aristotle and Plato. We have books by all kinds of philosophers and teachers, and not a one of those authors gets as much attention as does Jesus. He is so important that every society in the world marks time from when Jesus came into the world. What year is it? 2020. 2020 A.D. Anno Domini. Or now, because some people don't like the fact that it refers to Jesus, Anno Domini means year of our Lord. They want us to say common era. Well, what's common about it? Why do we say 2020 common era? You know what? I live in this era. I wasn't born 2,020 years ago. For me, common era started in 1956. I don't know when your common era started. I have an era that is in common with you if you are alive right now. But we mark time from the birth of Jesus Christ. That makes him the single most important person who has ever walked the face of the earth. I think it's reasonable then for you and for me to take four months, three and a half months, and examine just one of those four biographies to see why is he so important? 
Why do we mark time from his birth? What is so special about him? Now, the people at the Bible Project have done an outstanding job of summarizing what this book is about. We're going to take more time with it. We're not going to spend just five or six minutes. Each week, we're going to take a snippet of Mark's gospel, and we're going to look at what it says. Today, we'll be chapter 1. Now, I want to make sure you understand something. Most of the time, I'm not going to take whole chapters. I'll take sections out of a chapter. But today, we're going to look at the whole of the first chapter. Because I want you to see what Mark says is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to read a few verses, then I want to talk about it. Read a few verses, I'll talk about it until we finish with the first chapter. (coughs) Pardon me. I will do my best not to hack and cough all the way through. Let's read, starting with chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing that I want you to know from the verses we've read. The beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ is a call for people to get ready. That word gospel is not a word that was coined by the Bible writers. That word gospel had been around for a long time. The Greek word is euangelion. It means good news. You means good. Angel means message. The word angel means that someone is a messenger. The angels of God are not only warriors who fight battles in the spiritual realms, but they are messengers to bring news of someone. Euangelion, the good news, is something that is cataclysmic, that is so great that everybody needs to sit up and pay attention. As a matter of fact, when Augustus Caesar was born and Julius Caesar took notice because he was not, Augustus was not Julius's biological son. Later, Julius would adopt him. But the birth of Augustus was such an event that Julius Caesar proclaimed a gospel. Here is something big and life-changing. It changes the epoch. It changes the way all of history will be looked at from this point on. There were many times in the Greek culture 
that people would proclaim a gospel. So here comes Mark, a Jew, but speaking the Greek language as everybody in the land did at that time. And he wants to talk about how the appearance of Jesus Christ is a life-changing, epic-changing, history-changing event. And he says, this is the beginning of the good news that will change your life. And the point of it is Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one anointed by God and appointed by God to change the world. He is God's Son. Now let me tell you something. A lot of mythology, whether you want to look at Roman or Greek or Hindu or Chinese or whatever you want, has to do with God's appearing to people. Either manipulating things in history or appearing to them. But not a one of them is ever going to match up to what you have with the appearance of Jesus Christ. This is not just God giving people a visual look at him. This is God coming and appearing as a life with us. With all of the other gods that you might care to name, if they were real, and they are not. And if they appear, and they don't, they only appear for a brief section of time and never for a few days or weeks or months. With the appearance of Jesus Christ, you have the entrance of God into our sphere as a human being from conception through death. And after death to the resurrection. You have God coming and spending a lifetime among human beings. That separates him from any myth about any other idolic God that you might care to name. Nobody else, nobody else who has ever been proclaimed as a God has done what God did Jehovah God in coming to earth and becoming a human being. The very name Jesus or Yeshua means Jehovah saves. No other God is named salvation. No other God comes into this world and says, I am the one that is going to set everything right. And that's what the very name of Jesus means. And when John comes in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, what John says is the Messiah is coming into the world. You need to get ready for him. Now listen. What I'm about to say to you, you might not have heard anybody say plainly to you before now. It may be that they've said it, but you didn't hear it. I want you to hear it now. I want you to be very certain of what I'm saying. I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't want you to, 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 to ignore what I'm saying. Listen, it is this. If you want an encounter with the living God of all creation, you need to get ready. You cannot face him without getting ready. 
And the call that John makes to the people 2,000 years ago is the same call that he would make if he were standing in front of us today. You need to repent and get ready. Repent means to turn. It means to do a 180 degree turn. It means to begin living life differently than you have ever lived it before. Up until now, you have lived your life on your terms. You have decided what was best for you. You are the one who decided whether or not you were going to defy not just the commands of your parents or the instruction of a teacher or a professor or the civil authorities or the people in charge of some organization of which you are a member. You have decided at some point you were going to defy the very commands of God. You have lived life on your terms. And because you have, and because you have been defiant of God, because you have been living in rebellion of God, even in a small way, you are not fit to face the living God. And if you're going to face Him, if you are going to begin to examine your life and see whether or not Jesus is worth following, the first thing you need to get in mind is you must change. It's not up to God to change. We're told in the book of Hebrews that God does not change. James, the younger half-brother of Jesus, would write, God does not change like shifting shadows. The writer of Hebrews says that God is the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If something is broken in the relationship between you and your Creator, <coughs> it is not the Creator who has changed. It is you. And if you are ever going to come back into a good relationship with Him, you must change. So before we go any farther into what we are told here in the Gospel of Mark, or if you were to go into Matthew or Luke or John, understand that before you will ever be ready to face God, you must change. And the place where that change begins is here in your mind and here in your heart. You're going to have to be open not to the possibility, but to the fact that you have blown it in life. If you had not, you would not feel the aching need for a Savior. The fact you do means change is necessary. Let's go on. In verse 9, we read, In those days, meaning the days when John was preaching out at the Jordan River and baptizing people, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you... I am well pleased. 
the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus, too, had to get ready for what was ahead. That may seem unreal to us. I mean, after all, he's God. If he doesn't change, if he has been the same yesterday and is the same now and will always be the same forever, what did he have to do to get ready? The Son of God has existed eternally. What I'm about to tell you is hard to understand. It's hard to explain. I do not understand it. I accept it by faith. Here it is. There is one God. But he exists or demonstrates himself, uh, himself in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. God is eternal. He has always been here. He had no origin. He will never see. He exists outside of time and space. He is not bound by the shackles that you and I face. He created everything. He created time. He created space. Time and space are not eternal. Matter is not eternal. God is eternal. I don't understand that, do you? I don't understand how one person can, or how one being can exist in three persons. I don't understand it, but it's true. I don't have to understand something in order for that to be true. You shouldn't either. The sun has always existed. But he has always existed as God. He hasn't always existed as a human being. He became a human being at his conception 2020 or 21 years ago. Actually, add another six or seven years to that. The calendar's a little bit messed up. He became a human being. And if you read some of the other Gospels, particularly the Gospel according to Luke, the good news according to Luke, you will find <coughs> that Jesus grew up from infancy to being an adult. And it was not always an easy thing. How many of you remember how hard it was for you at times when you were growing up? Did you ever have disagreements with your parents? Was there ever a time when your parents did not understand you and you did not understand your parents? You read the gospel according to Luke and you'll find that there was an episode when Jesus was 12 years old and his family went to the temple in Jerusalem for a, a, a holy day, the Passover. And when the festival was done, Jesus stayed around in town while the rest of the family left. He was 12 years old. He had probably been through the ceremony that you may have heard about called a bar mitzvah, which means son of the covenant. Bar means son, mitzvah means covenant. 
according to that ceremony, Jesus was now expected to begin to shoulder the responsibilities of a man, not a child, a man. Well, we would still think that a 12-year-old needs some supervision by an adult. How many of you think that? Yeah. Now, Jesus is God, but he's still a child. That just blows my mind. I mean, it really does. Here's the one, the being, who has created everything that exists. And he's spending time in the temple not asking questions of the scribes and the teachers of the law. They are asking questions of him, questions they've always had about the scriptures, maybe about creation, and he's answering their questions. You want to talk about a child prodigy? Here he is. Looked for him for three days before they found him. But they didn't start looking for him until they'd been out of town for three days. So it's been a week since he was under their supervision. And when they find him, their question is, how could you do this to us? You think they understood him? No. His response is, you should have known I would be about my father's business. And he's not talking about Joseph. Joseph's business was in construction back in Nazareth. Jesus is answering questions in the temple in Jerusalem. His father's business is to do the will of his father. Joseph and Mary had spent 12 years with this, the son they are raising, and they did not understand him. And he was surprised they didn't. It says that he went home with them, and he learned obedience. That does not mean that he was ever disobedient to them before this. It means that he willingly placed himself under their authority, even though he holds the secrets of all of creation. He knows what eternity is like before anything was made. He knows how things work, and he put himself under their authority. As God, he knows everything. As a human being, he has some preparing to do. As God, he knows what it's like to watch people being tempted. But now, as a human being, part of his preparation for what lies ahead is for him to be obedient to a command of his father, a command he did not need. He had not committed a sin, and yet he submitted to baptism because it was his father's will. He practiced obedience. And then, though I'm sure he had faced the normal temptations of growing up, he is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, the third person of God. And he is tempted 
for 40 days and 40 nights. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I are. Listen to me. In order for Jesus to do what he came to do, which is to save us, he had to face down everything that you and I will ever face that would draw us away from God. He faced it all. There is not a temptation that you will face that is not common to other people. And there is not a temptation that you will ever face that Jesus did not face. That was part of his preparation. In order for him to save you and me, he had to be ready for it. He had to know what it is you and I have to face in life. Let's read on. John was arrested, meaning John the Baptist. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message to the people came at the set time and it required the people to do the same thing that John had been saying. They needed to repent and believe the good news. One of the hardest lessons that any of us has ever had to learn is that our sense of timing is not the same as God's sense of timing. We experience this in a minor way in our relationships with other people. There are things that we expect from other people. There are things they expect from us. Very often our expectations are not with each other. How many of you have ever been told by your parents to clean your room? How many of you decided to wait a while before you would clean your room? Your parents, when they told you to clean your room, had a set time in mind immediately. You had a set time in mind when I feel like it. And I may never feel like it. If you know me very well, you know I'm a jokester. I go to restaurants. <clears throat> when you are near the end of your meal, the person who has been serving you will come out, bring you your bill, and say, no hurry, we'll take care of this whenever you want. I've been known to say, what if I don't feel like ever taking care of it? I mean... If, if, if you're asking me when I want to take care of it, the answer is never. How many of you would rather hang on to your money and get How many of you ever feel like paying the bill? Totally different answer. Our sense of timing and other people's sense of timing are not the same. Our sense of timing and God's sense of timing are not the same. 
If it had been up to you and to me, (coughs) if it had been up to Adam and Eve, God's sense of timing would have been this. We sinned, fix it now. God said one of her descendants is going to be the salvation. He didn't say how long it was going to be. He did not tell them it's not going to happen this week, next month, next year, next century, next millennium. If it were up to you and me, God would have fixed things immediately. We are told here that Jesus, when he came, said that the time had been fulfilled. In other words, now is the perfect time. When Paul writes his letter to the churches in Galatia, he says, in the fulfillment of time, when time was right, God sent his son into the world to save the world. God had been working since before creation to get things ready for the entrance of Jesus into the world to save the world. And yet, when Jesus appeared and began his ministry, people still weren't ready. It's been 2,000 years since these events. You're hearing this, and yet you may not be ready yet. Listen to me. The time was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. And if you are not yet ready to make a commitment to living life the way that God wants and to coming to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, It is well past time for you to get ready. And the most important part of getting ready for the salvation is to believe that it's good news. We don't like to clean our rooms. It's not a fun process. In cleaning our rooms, we come up against all of the things that we've just kind of thrown wherever. We come to realize that we've been overlooking some things that have been there for a while. Dust, grime, old chewing gum wrappers, food on a paper plate that we've shoved underneath our bed. Gum that we've stuck to the bottom of the chair. When we begin to clean our room, we begin to see all kinds of things that are wrong. Things that we really don't like, but we were willing to live with because, well, we were. And the thought that we now have to clean up our lives rubs us the wrong way. And to believe the gospel means to believe that being told to clean our room is good news. To believe the gospel is being told that to change the way we live is good news. 
To believe the gospel means we have to come to the realization that living life from this point on according to the will of God rather than the way we've been living it is good news. Why is it good news? Because it will bring us back into a good relationship with God who is our creator and who created us because he loves us. That's good news. You see, he doesn't want us to change just because he wants to cramp our style. He expects us to change because he loves us and because he wants us to love him. Let's read on. The next section is going to be a little bit longer here. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions. Jesus calls people to follow him even before they know who he is or where he's leading. Simon, Andrew, they didn't know where Jesus was going. James and John, they didn't know where Jesus was going. He just beckoned them, come, follow me. And when they did, when they heard the things that he said, and when they saw the things that he did, they and everybody else around were amazed. He did not teach like the scribes did, who would say, the law says this. Jesus, as we find in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 5, 6, and 7, says, You've heard that the law says this, I tell you this. And he was not contradicting the law, he was fulfilling it. He was saying, this is what it means. <coughs> That's a level of authority they had never encountered. And why could he say the things that he did? Because he's the one who wrote the law. He studied it as a human being, but he wrote it as God. When he speaks, he knows whereof he speaks. And everybody senses he knows whereof he speaks. 
And when he says, come, follow me, I'm going to change your life. I'm going to make you become a fisher of men. What does that mean? I know what it's like to bait a hook. I know what it's like to throw the line into the water. I know what it's like to send nets over the side of the boat and to drag them along and to pull in a haul of fish or to find that my efforts for a day and a night have come up empty. Right, Bob? You want me to become a fisher of men? Those two words don't seem to go together. We fish for fish. Shouldn't we be we man for man? I'm going to go peopling. I'm going to make you become fishers of men. They did not understand that. They weren't going to understand it for a while. It's going to be a while before he shows them exactly what it means by sending them out into the world to say, you tell people about who I am. You tell them that the kingdom of God is at hand. You tell them it's past time for them to get ready. At this point, they had no clue. But when Jesus spoke, he spoke with such authority, they dared not contradict him. They simply followed. Listen to me. The command of Jesus to you today is that he gave to Simon and Andrew and James and John. Come, follow me. Stop whatever else it is you've been doing with your life and instead live your life on my terms. You come and learn from me you come and be obedient to me. I will change your life. That's authoritative. Let's read on. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will. Be clean. 
And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Jesus began his ministry with a demonstration that he is the good news and worthy of being followed. A woman sick with fever is made well and immediately begins serving. By the way, that word immediately, Mark uses that word a lot. I mean over and over again. And what he's just saying is, man, things happen in just such a rapid fire manner. With Jesus, it was always instantaneous. Whatever Jesus planned to do, he did. He didn't wait. When people came to him, they came as quickly as they could get there. And when Jesus decided to move from one place to another, he just went. It was immediate. A woman with a fever is healed and immediately begins serving. A man with an unclean spirit comes to him. And Jesus casts out that unclean spirit and does this over and over, healing people of physical diseases and cleansing them of unclean spirits, changing lives. At the very beginning of his ministry, he demonstrated that he is the good news. It's not just he's going to say something good about God the Father. The good news has come here to live among us. He's come here to change our lives. He has come here to repair what we broke. Absolutely. You and I have lived lives that are messed up. Some of us in small ways. Some of us in big ways. And the results are varied. You want to know? You want to know why I've had the flu for three weeks? Because of sin. Well, Charlie, what did you do? I could tell you. I spent time around other people. Now, that may not be a sin... But it's how I got the flu. You know why the flu came into the world? Because of sin. Until Adam and Eve sinned, there was no disease. There was no dying. Everything was right. It was a paradise. Whenever you and I decided to defy the will of God, we we were part of the cause of the being broken. When Paul writes his letter to the church at Rome, he says, All of creation groans as in the pains of childbirth, awaiting for the sons of God.
God to be revealed. You know who the sons and daughters of God are? The people who have submitted to the will of God so that Jesus would save them and change their lives. Jesus is the good news. You and I need to look to Jesus. He is Jehovah who saves. He is the one who is God who came into the world to become a human being, to live life the way that we live it, except in this regard, he never sinned. And he's the only one who can tell us how to perfectly live life. He is our example. He is our Savior. He is the good news. If he had never come, you and I would still be lost. But because he has come, you and I can be saved. He is the good news. He has changed the world. He is in the process of restoring creation. And when he comes again, everything bad that you and I have ever known in this life will be gone. No more sickness. No more pain. No more death. No more crying. He is the good news. Let's pray. We're grateful that you were not content to leave us on our own, but instead came here and lived as a human being and showed us the way to live. Not only that, but Father... You sent your son here so that he could give himself as a ransom to redeem us, to bring us back to you, to save us from the clutches of the evil one and bring us back into your presence. Father, Jesus is worthy to be followed. Help us to put behind our ideas of what life is all about and instead to come to you and live life on your terms so that Jesus will save us too. It's in his name that we pray.